I'm Francia. Welcome to Youth-Led Education, a podcast. One thing that was really uh, amazing about interviewing Nicole was the fact that they were basically always like two steps ahead of me in terms of questions, always answering questions even, you know, before I had asked them. Our brains seem to be on similar wavelengths, which is pretty cool. I called Bobby to tell him somebody from this Frobel project had spray painted on top of his mural. Beloved, super really? famous mural Aww. that's right in my neighborhood. One of the people in my, me and Paulina's class had spray painted on it. And number one, he already knew it. I was trying to apologize. I called him and I was trying to explain it to him. And he, he said, Nicole, why are you trying to control the youth? Yeah, they're showing us the future and we're lucky if we get to see it, you know? Yeah why we're trying to control them instead of mm-hmm. setting them loose. I'm not yeah. trying to, you know, romanticize like different developmental stages. Middle schoolers are not always ready to be in charge of their own nutritional needs. You know, I do think that there should be elected representation for children in Congress and they should be children. And I think mm-hmm. uh, we're um, really very much trying to, um, you know, use power over them. The way Nicole views the roles of artist and teacher are very interesting to me. First of all, I am an artist and a teacher. When I'm doing a good job, I bring my artist self to my teaching. I'm an art teacher. (laughs) So the teaching I'm doing is about art and sometimes it is the art. I can't separate the artist in society from the art teacher in society. There's so many different ways to teach. And one of them uh, that is actually not so effective, but unfortunately so common, would be the banking model. Former SAIC student Joy Kalansis describes the banking model as such. In the classroom, teachers and students are placed in contrast to one another. Paulo Freire describes a model of teaching known as the banking model. This model of teaching places the educator in a position of power where they have all the information needed and the learners have none. It is then the educator's role to dispense the information in a timely manner and a workable amount to the learners. This type of teaching places students in a submissive role. Students cannot be anything but learners and therefore cannot learn from or teach each other. In opposition to the banking model is the problem-posing model. And I would, I would argue that Nicole is very much operating in a problem-posing education model as as you will see later. I think that knowing a little bit about Nicole's research interests is also important because I think that that really exemplifies their pedagogical practice and how they how they work with youth. You know I've felt all different kinds of ways about Mm -hmm. how I position this or that and and I've gone from you know, being really deeply involved in studio art to being like a full-time teacher and not having time for a practice. You know, I've felt all different kinds of ways about mm-hmm. how I position this or that. And, and I've gone from, 
you know, being really deeply involved in studio art to being like a full-time teacher and not having time for a practice. For a couple years, I was able to spend every waking moment that I wasn't teaching at SAIC actually in a school volunteering, doing sort of my own sort of self-funded residency. At that school, I was like, finding all this history from the neighborhood and from another school that had existed before that the school had been built. And somebody had just told me like this, this story in 2014, that as they told me about this thing that happened in 1973, right? This, mm-hmm. this school uprising that happened that, and I just couldn't believe it because it was two blocks from my house and I'd never heard of it. And I was a CPS teacher and I studied the schools and I couldn't believe I didn't know about it. It, it it changed policy, it changed direction, and mm-hmm. it brought attention to the plight of students that were really suffering. That led me to find out about another branch of the same school in 68, that it also had this uprising, described as if it was like a Chicano student uprising. And so, no, it turned out there was this small movement um, in 68, but this was not a Latinx-led movement. This was a Black student movement. Mm-hmm and sort of swimming in the same current that then self-organized and led a student organized, student led mm-hmm. citywide walkout that had been estimated to be about 35,000 students. Started finding things on eBay and just, and, and bringing them in to the students. I've been saying, what do you think? You know, like, did you know about this? And, you know, I mean, I built lesson plans around mm-hmm. it and we did activities where they would yeah. interact with it. And I'm really interested in uh, like coalitions between uh, uh, black and Latinx communities in uh-huh. battles. Polypening is their kids aren't even finishing school. Like they were pissed, you know, they uh-huh. weren't. The black students uh, who led this had been doing once a week walkouts on Mondays. Uh-huh. Right? And they were demanding things like more homework and college prep classes like they wanted Mm -hmm. harder academic work you know like kids wanted more work well yeah because they were told that people like them didn't go to college after my talk with nicole i started learning about a radical art organization called room 13 Um, but while learning about room 13 i found a lot of similarities in Nicole's practices and, you know, this this kid power youth autonomy that programs like uh, Room 13 offered. But also one thing that Nicole and also the, the Room 13 article uh, both pointed out is the fact that a lot of these movements and these art um, projects are largely underfunded. Um, if there's no grants, the, the artists are often not not paid or not uh, rightly paid for their work and that's that's a common theme in artists and we we really want to uh, rectify that despite the fact that art is sometimes underfunded and devalued nicole still finds a lot of joy in their art education practice particularly with working with youth I don't find working with young people to be like a, an instant or obvious thing. I'm not saying that teaching is like easy for me or something now. It's something that keeps me curious and it keeps me excited. Um, and working with groups of people, particularly young people, it's just, there's so much 
to it that keeps me coming back. Well, she did express that youth and working with them were one of her reasons for, for continuing uh, to be in the field and continuing to be active. When I asked about how to avoid burnout, uh, she did express that self-care is very important for artists to practice. Like, you know, caring for myself, making sure that I'm getting adequate sleep and exercise and nutri mm -hmm. good nutrition. That's what people meant by in this recent move suggesting everybody do, does self-care like th that's a new thing i grew up in the era where activists would work themselves to death you know and i'm not saying nobody should be in the streets when we know the cops are killers i'm not saying that because mm -hmm. if we all go together that's safer for all of us right yeah. and if we just leave it to the people that are the most fired up that's not safe for them worry about some of these moves towards toxic wellness. I was hearing about one would say, for example, we're in a book group and I'm like, oh, you should read this text, right? And then we're going to get together and read it. They come back the next week. Oh, I was just really caring for myself last week, so I didn't read it. And you're in the book group and you're like, but you're supposed to lead this. Or there's some sort of like, well, you're not caring for yourself because you did it. It's sort of weird blanket application. Yeah, happening. sure. And, and it's, it is a, like a cousin of toxic positivity, I think. At the end of our conversation, Nicole shared a few astute things about representation and teaching. They need young teachers. They need peer teachers. Uh, the really good schools I've worked in have like, kindergartners have like third grade reading buddies. Yeah. have like sixth grade computer buddies to show them how to stay on task and uh, you know and not just like fart around on the computer and there's a lot of reasons why people might not understand what the hell a 52 year old person like me is saying if they're mm -hmm. five like why they need somebody closer to their age to explain some things and that's how children used to be taught they weren't taught by like a sage older person. They were taught by everybody. And they were taught by their parents. They were taught by older brothers and sisters and cousins and nephews yeah. and their mother's youngest brother and things like that, you know. Um, and so they had a, a wider range of people bearing messages. And the way people teach and the way schools are so that you have all these different teachers, it's like so life affirming too. I have mm -hmm. a teacher candidate who comes in and says, I can't become a teacher. I'm too shy. And I say, no, shy kids need teachers too, that they've got to find their models, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I never had a, a Mexican-American woman teacher until mm -hmm. graduate school. Yeah, it just, it blew my mind. And that's why when I came out, I was like, I'm going to be go going to schools no matter what I do. I'm mm -hmm. going to be hanging out with kids. I'm going to be talking to kids because yeah. they can't, they can't not see somebody. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Francia. Till next time.